Welcome to the Change in Nature podcast. Inspiring people, inspiring change. For more episodes of this podcast, as well as retreats and offerings to help you change in nature, visit our website, changeinnature.org. Hello and welcome to the first episode of the Change in Nature podcast. My name's Andy Reingold, I'm the co-founder of Change in Nature, and this episode is very much in honour of our first guest, Polly Higgins, who passed away only a few months after this was recorded. Polly's death was a really emotional time for people all over the world, because she was just such a caring enthusiastic and passionate individual who touched so many people's lives. After meeting with Polly every single time, I can say that I felt so uplifted and inspired. She's missed not only as a person, but also as an incredible eco-pioneer who campaigned so effectively for the law of ecocide. Her work lives on, so if you are inspired by anything you hear in this episode, please go to her campaign website, which is stopecocide.earth, and sign up as an earth protector. This episode explores what Polly has to say about her amazing quest, this journey from leaving the hamster wheel of barrister law in London to campaigning for ecocide, both internationally, but also, incredibly, in her own back garden. Enjoy. I first met Polly in the Supreme Court in London, because I was a juror on the ecocide trial. There was a mock trial, Two CEOs were in the dock and it was played out as if ecocide was an international law. And the whole day was literally like a court case Mm -hmm. and I wasn't allowed to speak to anyone. My phone was taken and we had proper deliberations as a jury would do in a normal court case. And I'll have to say it was an extraordinary day. Mm. The energy in the room was amazing Mm -hmm. and it was enthralling. And it was really hard as a juror, actually, to come up with a decision and to agree on a verdict. So um, an extraordinary day. And that just shows a very small part of what Polly has done to bring ecocide, uh, the destruction of the natural environment as an international law and to the UN and very many other institutions. So, um, Polly, thank you for taking this time for this uh, no, interview. No, thank you very much. Thank you for being a jury man. <laughs> thank you. It was a lot of fun as well. Yeah, I and really it, it was it. an electric day yeah. uh, to have the Supreme Court give us their court to road test ecocide as if it had already become an international crime mm. was really an affirmation from our judicial system that they were very interested to see whether or not this could stack up and mm. actually be tried as a crime. And indeed, you and the jury decided that it could be. Mm. Yeah, and you came back with, I think it was two, two convictions and one acquittal on mm. the three charges. Yeah. 
And you say you devote your time to one client, which yeah. is the Earth. Yeah. Um, do you want to say a bit more about why the Earth needs a, a lawyer? <laughs> How are we to know what the Earth requires here? But actually, if you were to take a, a, an objective stance and say, here we are, we have so much damage and disruption that's commercially driven I, and state-sanctioned, and it's clearly causing ever-escalating pollution issues, ever-escalating endangered species, biodiversity issues, ever-escalating um, uh, melting of ice, climate change issues, it goes on and on and on, which has a knock-on adverse impact for the indigenous world, for uh, poverty in Africa, for instance, for, uh, I mean, you could look at any number raft of uh, knock-on adverse impacts that is as a result of dangerous industrial activity that is causing serious harm, then it becomes very obvious that we have missing law, criminal law. I, we have a lot of civil law or, or international treaties or agreements that are either soft law or that you could sue or could go to arbitration, but none of that is stopping the escalation of both climate change and biodiversity loss and extensive damage destruction to a loss of ecosystems. So that really points to missing law with teeth, a law to protect our earth uh, that has legal teeth and to have legal teeth it has to be criminalised, which is why I'm advocating for ecocide to be an international crime and in that way protect the rights, not just of, as we see here, trees having rights to, but earth rights, mm -hmm. nature's rights, if you will. It gives it the protection, it gives it the governance that's missing at the moment. Mm. And what was your journey to um, be a proponent of ecocide work? It, it's, it, it's a kind of, uh, it's, it's non-linear, yeah? Um, Realisation and understanding is kind of calm at different junctures. But it did start with a very critical question. Uh, and my question to myself was, how do we create a legal duty of care for the earth? And I, as I later realized, the quest, if you like, my mission began by asking a question. Uh, and I became the quester. I'm on my quest. And every quest begins with a question. So, I was framing an issue in terms of where do we go to find the solution and by asking that question how do we create a legal duty of care for the earth I got to a certain point which then led me to the next iteration the next step and the next step to the point that I then got to the stage of someone actually I when I was on a platform in Copenhagen at the climate negotiations speaking there someone in the audience stood up and said we need a new language to deal with this mass damage destruction to a loss of ecosystems and I found myself thinking yeah it's like genocide ecological genocide ecocide this should be a crime why is this not a crime that would create a legal duty of care for the earth it would impose a responsibility to protect upon governments and upon corporations and in a way once you start searching uh, the the answers start to come in you 
uh, I was looking for the answer to that question and here someone stood up and spoke out which triggered then the thought process in my head and it was a state of heightened alertness if you like trying to find the answer to that question and now that's evolved okay yes ecocide prime I've, I, I know what the fast track legal route is for that and now it's about identifying what are the challenges that have to be met. Uh, one of them being, uh, yes, we know this is possible, yes, we can fast track it in international law, I, but it's political will. And where you have small island states that are suffering from climate ecocide, rising sea level tsunamis, they just do not have the finance to have a seat at the table to take this as an international law forward which is why we set up Mission Life Force, our campaign, to help finance that. So every step brings a new iteration, if you like, a realisation of, okay, then I have to examine what that definition could be. Aha, okay, that then opens the door to what is the legal route. Ah, okay, now we have the legal route, but how do we take it forward? Mm, okay, the challenge is then for financing it, for those tiny, you know, Davids of this epic and David and Goliath story to take it forward and so it continues and continues and that's the journey of the quester if you like it's not over once the question has been answered if anything it takes you on to the next questions mm -hmm. along the path and you, you strike me as someone who's unbelievably passionate about what you do and I think Mission Life was actually a really good name for a lot of reasons but one thing is like it really does feel like this is your mission. Yeah. Um, and it trumps all else that, that there might be, like concerns about money or time. It's yeah. like you are just on this mission. Yeah. yeah. Um, do you want to say a bit about what drives you? Um, well, you know, I think it, it's really simple. And it's something that I see as a golden thread for many people is the deep sense of care. But also, uh, allied with that, it, it's a certain sense of fearlessness. I, and I guess that comes from having a higher sense of purpose, that I'll keep on going no matter what. I, I haven't been shut down by the negativity of, oh, it'll never happen, oh, I can make no difference, oh, you know, oh, but, oh, but, oh, but, oh, but. If anything, it's arising to the challenge. Who am I not to give it my best shot? I, and it's an invitation for others to do the same. It's not a solo journey. I cannot do this alone. I don't wish to do it alone, actually. And part of the campaign is inviting others onto this mission, if you like, where we're aligning the force of law with, with, with the force of life. Because ultimately this will result in the saving of lives of many, not just people, but we're looking at, you know, at risk biodiversity species, lists and lists of them there that with escalation of climate change are under risk and are already being threatened with extinction. And how we can significantly abate the trajectory that we're on to a meaningful uh, level where we can live in harmony, in peace with this earth. And that ultimately is something that, yeah, is the biggest challenge of our time. And yes, 
of course we can meet that. That's why we're here, surely. If we hear the call, the choice to stand up and say, I wish to protect my earth and I'm going to gift my life in service of that. I think that's, that's quite an adventure to undertake. And have you always been called to that adventure in service to earth? Or is that something that's grown? It's grown. Uh, it's something that I, I hadn't appreciated for quite some time. I mean, I can, I can look back to when I was a child and how deeply I was connecting with nature and how important that was for me. And I can, I can see that I was particularly drawn to uh, doing certain things or, or engaging with a certain way of engaging with life. I, but that very much, it was at a, an unconscious level until far later when there began a more a kind of deeper process of inner inquiry and then beginning to realise that in fact what I'm doing is in service to something greater than the self, whatever that may be. I, I'm, I'm not religious, I am spiritual, but I, I, I had a very religious Catholic upbringing, That's, that doesn't fit for me. But I do see this as quite a, a spiritual endeavour, if you like. And by taking time out and, and examining what is it I want to engage in? Why is it that I, I feel a, a calling to, to do something that actually can effect change uh, through my life purpose? Only then do we really get an opportunity to kind of ask and, and examine those questions. Mm. Yeah. And it, I mean, it seems that that balance is so important, yeah. but then so often people are just on the outer, on the action. Yeah. And, um, and that inner development mm. and inquiry um, can often be left behind. Mm. And I was really interested in reading that you, when you were first kind of bringing together your thoughts around Ecoside, mm. that I think you took a year off. Yeah. And really inquired into that. Yeah. Do I say a bit more about the, the importance of that spaciousness? Yeah. I. In a way, I, I, I undertook that without consciously understanding that I was entering into a process of deeper inquiry. What, what had happened was I had, I had decided to take a year out from being a barrister to examine this question of how do we create uh, a duty of care for the earth. And actually what I was doing was asking a deeper question of myself. How do I participate? In creating a, a duty of care for the earth <laughs> I but I didn't realize that at the time and by giving myself that that space you know I was then looking and examining something very different you know I wasn't just getting out there early in the morning to get on the underground to go to a court to you know, fight someone's case, to then come back into chambers, to pick up the next brief, to then go home, to work all night, to, to then collapse in bed, to get up early, to you know, grab a coffee, get back in the underground, get back into court, to argue the next case. So that, you know, it, you know, I was in this rabbit wheel, um, or what do you call it? It's not rabbits, they're, they're um, you know, these little animals that go around in wheels. And Hamster wheels. Hamster wheels, yeah. And you know, that thing of decoupling from the hamster wheel of kind of what 
I perceive to be normal life. I think it's completely abnormal now when I look at it. But for me, that had become a normal life. And to, you know, by taking that time out and, and actually one of the first things I did was I took my husband up to the west coast of Scotland to spend time up there in nature. It was my 40th birthday and I really go walking in the hills and connecting with nature there and having a very big conversation with him. How do we create, how do I create a legal duty of care for the earth? I, so it was creating the space to engage in a very different form of uh, conversation. You know, that's a big question to ask. And what does that mean for me? And how can I engage with that? How can, do I have a role in this? How, if so, what is it? I, where do I start looking? Who do I start speaking to? I, I'm a barrister, I want tools. You know, the, who, who's drafting these laws? And discovering that actually nobody was drafting them. I did discover lawyers talking about it. And indeed, if you go through the annals of time, you'll discover that Plato was talking about you know, this. But, but actually the creation of those laws uh, is a different matter. And in a way, I kind of came full circle after uh, a couple of years thinking, okay, if nobody's actually out there drafting this, although there are a lot of people talking about the kind of philosophical context, the jurisprudential context, maybe then I have to put my mind to drafting what's required. And that took uh, courage because for quite a long time I thought, who am I to do that? And then getting to a point of thinking, who am I not to? I, and yeah, the idea has sprung up, so let's see if I can meet it. And at least if I give it some form or iteration, then even if it's not quite perfect, maybe someone can take it further forward or you know, others will come forward to help and assist with this. And actually, it, it became very well formed rather easily uh, once I put my mind to doing that in 2010. It, it really took shape in a very concise, it was almost mm -hmm. you know, here, it, 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 you know, it's rather like looking through those kind of amazing long sort of things and everything's out of focus and then you turn it and you go, oh, beautiful, that, that's it. You know, mm. Those kind of moments and then it's out of focus again and you go, it's another beautiful picture. Yeah. And one of your TED Talks is you know, very much on that theme, dare to be grey. Yeah. Like how do you take those steps when you're feeling like, who am I to do this? Or yeah. how how do you take that leap when you're feeling that it's a very hard leap to take? Yeah, um, I don't know if there's any one answer to that. I, but what I have discovered is that there are a number of uh, very important things. Share the overwhelm. Uh, share the moment of hitting rock bottom. That's been absolutely critical to me moving forward, you know, uh, and give expression to it. Ball your eyes out. <laughs> it's a good thing to do. I mean, they just discovered last year that we actually create different chemicals when we 
five, where they're not in sight of terror or fear or upset or injustice or what have you. Different chemicals is actually a healing process. I and so I actually yeah I think I'm a big advocate of crying. <laughs> that definitely definitely has helped you. You know really feeling that pain and allowing it to go through and, and allowing it to come out. So that, that's, that's very important. I, connecting with like-hearted people who, who really get my value basis and who share my value basis, that's deeply nourishing and deeply helpful. And it also means when we do hit rock bottom, we can come back up far easier. I, to know that we're no, not alone in this, there are many of us who care deeply and who are consciously taking steps to make this world a better world. I, and that, that's absolutely vital to really know and understand that this is a shared endeavour and that it's, it's, it's more than okay to care really deeply. It's more than okay to really feel it deep in our heart. Someone sent me a video the other day of this guy in Finland in floods of tears taking his iPhone, I guess, through uh, a forest that had just been deforested on the pretext that there was some termite that had to be gotten rid of for commercial logging purposes. And he was absolutely distraught and he was in floods of tears. And, uh, you know, thinking how courageous of him to film himself at that point of utter uh, despair and hurt and pain of that and how he was giving voice to what he was seeing and how wrong it was and, and how great that a young lad is capable of doing that and then putting it up on YouTube and having thousands and thousands of people then write messages of support underneath and beginning to feel that there's a community out there that could help him galvanise people to, to try and stop this in his country. So, you know, something's happening here. I mean, you know, 20 years ago, he would be branded a nutter. Uh, and indeed, it may well be some people do think he's a nutter for having given such overt expression to what he experienced there. But I don't. I, I think that's wonderful. I think that actually that's very powerful. He's giving permission to others to give expression to what they also feel and experience to what's happening to the earth today. Because it is traumatic, it's massive. And to not face that is to button it down, to numb out, to live half a life. I mean, in a way, it's not about... I, 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 I undertook the Hoffman process some years ago, which was life-changing for me. Uh, and my teacher there, I remember him saying that it's not about feeling better, it's about getting better at feeling. And that's so true. Uh, you can feel better by numbing stuff out, by getting drunk, by, you know, whatever. I, or you can actually allow yourself to feel the pain and share that, or just ask others to help you through it when you're, you're at your rock bottom so that you can come out the other end and upwards. Mm. That, that capacity to be vulnerable with each other is is very intimate but also vital and it actually expands our compassion for each other as well and our compassion for what's happening in the world and builds resilience 
uh, with each other. And that's the stuff of community yeah. building. And I suppose so much of your work is strategic. It has to be writing laws and building coalitions mm. and making the interventions that are going to have the biggest effect. Mm. How do you also bring in that that feeling, that kind of touch and the emotion in your heart? How do you mm. bring that into your leadership and the change that you're trying to make in the world? Well, you know, in a way, I just, it, I mean, I say just, it's about remaining true to myself. I, so my narrative is not that different whether or not I'm talking to activists or whether or not I'm talking to a minister of state who's engaging with this. I, because actually those who engage with this are engaging with it because of deep care. So that is a kind of, we're making explicit an overriding principle of first do no harm. So it's an intrinsic value-based law. And I mean, Martin Luther King talked about this, about only when we align human law with higher law shall harmony prevail. And at the moment, law, if you like, is upside down. Here, the earth is suffering great harm. Here, communities are being destroyed. I, everything is, is being shaken up, if you will. And likewise, so our legal system is requiring to be shaken up. And instead of it all being driven by property and ownership and extrinsic values, commercialization of nature, uh, putting a price tag on nature, I, it's actually about flipping that model and saying, no, 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 it's the intrinsic values. How do we collectively owe a duty of care here? What does that look like? to be earth protectors in law, how do we protect our communities, what is it to be a, a guardian of this earth, a steward, a trustee of our earth, and to put in place a law to actually outlaw the serious harm, the, the ecocide, criminalise that, so that those that are causing the most harm are actually held to account in a criminal court of law. It also paves the way for restorative justice as well. So it's not a, it's not a different narrative, it's the same narrative. And in a way what I'm doing is I'm demystifying law. I'm taking people on a journey and I fail as a barrister in, in a court of law if you can't understand me or my client can't under, understand me. So in a way what I'm doing is I'm, I'm taking what seems at first instance terribly complicated and demystifying it. In truth, it's not complicated at all. Uh, you can ask simple questions. Does this cause harm, yes or no? Whose interests are being pr protected here? The polluter, the destroyer, or the community, uh, the earth? And so you can make decisions very quickly saying, well, obviously that's, that's protecting a vested interest, but it's not protecting nature's right to thrive, I, or the community's right to thrive. And so it, it, it's actually, in some respects, it's very simple, but it is complex. So what I'm doing is I'm taking quite a complex issue and demystifying it as I take it forward so that non-lawyers alike, and remember this, m most of the political world that's engaging with this does not have a legal background. So I'm having to skill them up just as much as we're skilling up activists, for instance, to talk about this. 
I so I am skilling up a, a minister or ambassadors or what have you. And this, I love this language, being a trustee of the earth. Mm. And it feels to me like you've seen ecocide at a mass scale, like you've been mm. to the tar sands in yeah. Canada. You've been all around the world and a lot of people haven't. Yeah. And do you think that's one of the challenges that people aren't seeing yeah. ecocide at a mass level? And so, yeah. like how to encourage people, I suppose, to be to sign up immediately like I want to be a trustee of the earth. I think it even goes further than that because y you can see it if you google it for instance but it's it, it's experiential I, and so it's a real challenge to take something like this forward especially in the western world where we don't have direct experience of what it's like to be on the front line of a small island state that's going underwater to know that your land is, is going to be grabbed by the seas, if you like, it, and it's just a matter of time, maybe within the next couple of years, to have no higher land to go to, to know that the international political community is, is doing nothing to give assistance here. I, and so, in a way, I bring that, that direct experience to the forefront actually does require the voices of those who are directly experiencing it to be heard and in a way one of the aspects of the indigenous world we often don't hear about are those tiny islands that are on the front line of climate ecocide of rising sea levels and so on and so forth so how do we bring that forward how do we create the enabling conditions so that their voices are heard and that's what we are doing with Mission Life Force, but again, we're appealing to people in the Western world who haven't had direct experience of that to have compassion for this. And this is the interesting thing the more capacity you have to feel pain, the more capacity you have to expand your cycle of concern. If you're numbed out here, you're not going to care for what happens over there. In fact, you can be perfectly capable of making decisions that adversely impact people over there. And indeed we're seeing that in big transnational corporations such as the fossil fuel industry. The knowledge is there, but the compassion is not, no interest. And indeed, if you did, you wouldn't be working in that industry. So what I'm appealing to is those who actually have the capacity to feel very deeply and care to understand what it is like for others out there and how we who have the privilege and the benefit of not having to fight for our lives quite literally to help those whose voices are not being heard and in a way Mission Life Force is very much about speaking to that I hear the small island states I, that can take this forward they don't have the finance we do to see it in the realms of the larger picture of how we can create a lot to protect the earth and that we who have the privilege and, and the ability to assist with that to help finance these guys to take it forward but it is a challenge I, and it's a challenge that we're meeting every day how do we take this narrative forward I, in a way that speaks to more people in a bigger way when we're under-resourced ourselves when we don't have the, f the funding we don't have state funding we don't have foundations fun funding us we're not a charity because we're advocating for a law which is political instead of being charitable 
So we're very dependent on the goodwill and uh, the gift economy, if you will, to help take this forward as we move onwards with it. Which I imagine takes a lot of trust. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I actually was speaking to someone earlier who was saying he's looking for the business model of how you can operate by taking something forward for the greater good and get it very well financed, especially when it's political, not charitable. And I was saying, well, you know, if you find that business model, please let us know, because we just haven't worked it out yet. <laughs> but it doesn't stop us. Mm. Yeah, this is the thing. We don't wait until the money turns up. We just go ahead anyway. Yeah. yeah. It seems to me that brings a lot of freedom as well. Yeah, it does. It and does. Um, it's amazing to see what different people have written about you. So you, your college just says you're one of the top ten of the world's visionary thinkers. Another quote that came up on a Google search was, you're one of the top unreasonable people in the world, <laughs> which I thought was brilliant. Yes, I'm very proud of that. Yeah. So when people think you're being unreasonable, yeah. what else do you keep going? <laughs> well, you know, here's the thing. Um, it's unreasonable people that change the world. If you sit there and say, oh, look, we have to be reasonable about this. This is the way the world is. Then the world will remain as is. The unreasonable person is the person who says, I refuse to accept that. So I'll give you an example of really unreasonable people. Permaculture. Permaculturalists are fundamentally unreasonable because they refuse to accept I uh, food uh, vegetables sprayed with chemicals and pesticides to the point that they go and grow their own uh, in a different way and not only that we're not even talking just about their food but actually how they engage with the world as well uh, permaculturalists biodynamics there's another you know group of people who are fundamentally unreasonable because they refuse to accept what is so they go and create what they would far prefer uh, and it's premised on a first do no harm principle, if you will. And they are changing. They are change makers. They're change makers within the very soil that they're engaging with, within the community that they're engaging with, and with the wider earth community, if you will, right across the world of, of individuals and communities that are doing exactly the same. So I'm a great believer in being unreasonable. And you can do that with a smile on your face. And, People don't realise you're being unreasonable there. <laughs> <laughs> and how about being, and well, bringing that quality, yeah, being unreasonable and a visionary into leadership. So yeah. this time really calls for us to stand up and be courageous. Yeah, maybe unreasonable, yeah. visionary leaders. Yeah, and you know this is the thing. Uh, it's good to do that. I, it's only culturally determined that it, it's rather wrong of us to stand up and say, no, wait a minute, that's wrong, that shouldn't be happening, I don't want that. I Actually, there's something incredibly powerful about saying, that doesn't work for me. I Because what you're doing is you're standing in your own truth, in your own power. And that doesn't have to be done in a way that pushes people away. I, you know, it's surprising how often standing up and saying, to be honest, that doesn't work for me, how many people go, okay, uh, fair enough, what would then? 
And sometimes it's even just having the conversation of, I don't really know, but I do know that that doesn't work for me. I, and another person recognising that you're entitled to give voice to that. But all too often we can play this kind of, and it's a very English thing, this kind of like English politeness of, oh yes, of course, oh, yeah, 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 and agreeing with things that don't really resonate with us, we don't really agree with, rather than saying, mm, you know what, that doesn't really work for me. Uh, I'll give you a classic example eating food that you don't really want to eat because you're around it to friends if it's a friend they, they're going to be fine with it so you know actually eating bread really doesn't agree with me you know? if you're okay with it I'll just have you know, the salad instead oh yeah sure fine you know? I, but too often we can get caught in a narrative of just going along with things because it is it's what is, it's what's expected. You don't want to cause trouble. You know that thing when you're sitting in a restaurant and you're sitting and you're going, oh, this really doesn't taste very good. And then the waiter comes along and says, how, how is your meal? You go, oh yeah, fine, thank you, thank you. Rather than saying, you know what, it hasn't really worked for me. Um, would you mind awfully? Could I change this? It, it can sometimes take a bit of a challenge. And of course, you know, the waiter will probably go, okay, fine. You know, I, but it, it's, it's sometimes so inbred in us to do the polite thing, I rather than really speaking the truth of a situation. And it's really important when we get to bigger issues. And if we're finding it difficult to do it with small issues, then what happens when it gets to bigger ones? I'll give you an example. I used to live in a cottage I, where I, it was a shared garden, we were renting it. And one morning I, I woke up late, uh, we just moved in, I looked out and here was this guy being around our garden wearing a white bodysuit with uh, a white box on his back and a, a, a gas mask spraying the edges of the lawn. And I looked at and thought, oh my God, what is going on here? Three days later, my pots that I brought down from London, they all wilted and died, or most of them died. I thought, my God, I have a mini ecocide happening in my own <laughs> front lawn. There's nothing I can do about it because we're renting. And then I thought, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. Of course there is. If I can't even deal with a mini ecocide in my own front lawn, then how on earth am I going to deal with you know the ecocide of the world that's out there? And it took a courageous conversation with our neighbours who thought, for all intents and purposes, they were doing a really good thing for us. They'd been advised by the estate agent that, you know, the only way you're going to rent your properties if you keep the garden tidy and that you use a chemical spray around it so that you don't have any weeds. The thing was, we had no biodiversity in the garden. No bird would come into our garden. They were all hopping over the hedge next door into an absolute wilderness over there. But we had nothing. It, it, in fact, what had been a hugely diverse, biodiverse garden had almost overnight been completely killed off. So how do I go about this conversation? And it took quite a lot of thinking about I and asking them if they would be all right with me bringing in a biodynamic gardener to help maybe put biodiversity back in. And had they thought about the adverse impact of using such sprays and and of course this brought up, well, why would this be a problem? You can buy this in a garden center. I mean, you know, it wouldn't be allowed to sell something that kills and, and kills biodiversity. And explaining, well, 
that's why we call it pesticides that's why we call it herbicides it, it, it does kill but it kills a lot more as well and I could see this kind of huh but surely if this is something that you know companies we pay them to come in to keep our gardens tidy and it's legal then it must be all right and so it's a huge conversation I mean I call it courageous conversations because I was having to take them on a whole journey of suddenly their eyes being opened up to this being quite a harmful practice and I'm not sure entirely whether or not they really got it but it was enough that they could allow me to bring in a biodynamic gardener who actually helped us he talked them through what he was doing and I think they actually probably thought he was very wacky but nonetheless they were okay for me to go ahead with him and we did our special preps and, and for 18 months we worked on bringing biodiversity back into that garden and by the time we moved out of that cottage we did have a few birds hopping around and finally there were worms again but that was something that I mean you know I mean actually the spring had happened three times before I realized this three times a spray had been used and it had killed everything that had been quite naturally a biodiverse area and the birds knew it they weren't going to go in there uh, but it had been killed off completely and it it was uh, this it is a courageous conversation in a way trying to check because i was essentially challenging their world view of what's acceptable what's not and just because something is legal doesn't necessarily mean it's non-harmful that was a really big one to kind of get their heads around so in a way it's the same thing with um, big transnational corporations just because it's legal doesn't mean it's non-harmful you know commercial ecocide is happening every day i i mean fossil fuel extraction is ecocide um deforestation is ecocide palm oil plantations ecocide and this is this is a huge problem that so much of this dangerous industrial activity has been normalized through law so it does require a courageous conversation, taking people on a journey to understand that just because it's lethal, legal doesn't mean that it's non-lethal. <laughs> just because it's legal doesn't mean that it, it's harmful. Mm. Uh, it's the same narrative. That's really inspiring to me that in these practice as well, I love this concept yeah. of a courageous conversation, but yeah. if you're not doing it in your back garden, how are you going to do it? to an international corporation. Exactly right. And it is practice. You know, every time, you know, I'm coming away thinking, how could I better frame that so that it's understood? Uh, you know, or, or saying, okay, that really didn't work. How can I reframe that? Or it's a constant sort of process of analysis. And we're doing it again at, with the campaign and the website as well. You know, constantly tweaking that, seeing how we can distill this, this narrative. How can we take a 20 minute conversation on what the campaign's about down to two and a half minutes in an animation and that took three months work with Jojo Mehta, my partner in crime if you will on all of this to see how we could completely distill that and we're still working on it. Mm. I'd like to end by asking you if you had one piece of advice for someone to live a courageous life that is fully connected to the change they'd like to see in the world and 
to communities, to the things they really love? Yeah. What would that be? Earth, your feet every day. Go stand on the earth. I'm saying this because I forgot this morning and I can really feel the difference. I, this is something that we, we've decided to do every single day. You know, go stick your tootsies in the earth, come rain or shine, just connect to the earth. And if you're in service to the earth, that's where we get our life force from. I, not being up in multi-stories at the top of concrete jungles, connect with the earth. And more than, you know, I mean, obviously a, a few minutes every day, something, but you know, if you can, go take yourself out onto the earth for, you know, long weekends, for weeks away. Gift yourself the time of deep connection with the earth. It makes all the difference and can take you on a far, far greater journey than you could even think is possible. Thank you. Uh, and I come back to the name as well, like this name Mission Life Force is, is coming back really strongly. Before yeah. I was talking about the mission aspect, yeah. but now it seems it's ending on that life force aspect yeah. that you just, just talking with you, I just really feel yeah. this kind of huge life force. Mm. And just hearing you say that is, yeah, just makes me want to go and put my feet in the earth. Yeah. So maybe that's what I do. And I'm connect with our own life force. Yeah. You know, what does that mean to me? Being in service to the earth, I have to be connected with it. I have to plug into the earth. Mm. Yeah. And I end up happier. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's the secret to happiness. <laughs> plug into the earth. Yeah. Brilliant. Oh, well, thank you so much, Polly. Thank you, Andy. Much appreciated. Thanks. You've been listening to the Change in Nature podcast. Inspiring people, inspiring change. For more episodes of this podcast, as well as retreats and offerings to help you change in nature, visit our website, changeinnature.org.